0: Welcome to episode 12 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, a consultant with Capco out of Dallas, Texas. And I'm actually recording this episode from Seattle, Washington. I'm attending the Tableau Partner Leadership Summit for 2017. And it's been a really interesting conference. I've gotten to meet uh, a lot of other partners that are doing great work around Tableau, heard about some new features. Uh, One of the things I want to share with you guys uh, that I wasn't completely aware of uh, before attending the conference is that Tableau is actually in the process of moving to a subscription-based model rather than a perpetual license model. Their uh, current CEO joined about six months ago. He was uh, with Amazon Web Services and helped build that out for several years before. And so one of his directions, it seems, is to uh, transition them more to a subscription model because it is uh... a little bit more predictable revenue stream for them as well as for their customers uh... it's also more in line with uh... the cloud pricing model that a lot of vendors like azure and aws are using and uh... it's gonna help them uh, essentially lower the barriers of entry for uh... new customers to try tableau while also letting them uh, map out a predictable revenue stream that can let them focus on enhancing the product over time. So I think there's definitely some pros and cons to it. Uh, One of the things that I'm kind of curious about is what that means for CapEx and OpEx. Um, If previously you were purchasing a large amount of licenses and and things like that at the beginning of a project, how is that going to translate to the subscription model? Anyway, there should be more announcements on that. I think some of that is going to start to debut around uh the second quarter of this year uh so if you're interested in uh in that uh, you can definitely find some information online but you can always um catch me uh through for the or twitter at at love of data or my personal account at robert fur and i'd be happy to to give you more information on that and i might even try to do a, a podcast summarizing the uh the the whole conference and, and sharing some thoughts from that uh... but anyway we're gonna get down to uh... the business at hand with this episode and i want to uh, take you on a little visualization uh... that i want you to just kinda close your eyes and picture that you own a business and you receive about fifteen million um, product transactions a year uh, about 10 million of those are products that are made in the U.S. by various suppliers, and about 5 million of those come from overseas. So you've got these 15 million records running around. You've had, uh, you've been in business for quite a while, so you've actually done about 300 million uh, sales up to this point. If you had to track all of this data in a system, how would you do it? Would you use uh, an OLTP-based system, Maybe feeding data into an Oracle or SQL Server database. Or would you maybe look at a uh, NoSQL document store like MongoDB uh, to store all of these transactions, um, particularly because some of the transactions have uh, unique elements. They all have some common elements about products, but um, some of them have certain features that others don't have. Uh, different attributes that you can track and so that might be a good way or would you say I don't need a database I'm just gonna keep paper records for everything and in fact I'm not really gonna be the one to track all of those records I'm gonna depend on other people to track them and then give them to me at certain points in time what would you do if you had to do some analytics on uh, your past sales Or if you had to track down someone to be able to market to them or ask them questions about, hey, how'd you like the product? Do you still have it? Things like that. Do you think a paper-based system would be uh, the most appropriate? kind of asking a leading question because of where this is going. I think the answer is a resounding no, but unfortunately for the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, that is what they are asked to do with uh, gun ownership records. So that's what we're going to be talking about in detail today. Uh, so this is episode 12, For the Love of Guns. First off, I want to talk about the sheer quantity of guns that are out there. And I'm going to also preface this. I'm I'm going to try to stay as neutral as, as possible and not really take sides here. But I, my general position on this is that I do advocate that we need a system to track this. Because I just, the data lover and the IT consultant in me, uh, cannot stand the fact that we have all of these records, and and you'll hear a little bit later in the podcast just how much in shambles some of this is, and it it just gets me right to the core that that there's not a system to track this. So anyway, let's start off with uh, with some an overview of the uh, the amount of guns that there are in the U.S. So it turns out that uh, based on a recent study. 3% of gun owners own almost 50% of all civilian guns. There are about seven, uh, between 7 and 8 million uh, what are called super owners, which own between 8 and 140 guns. And on average, that group owns about 17 guns apiece. So 3% of gun owners, 7.7 million people, own 50% of the guns. In 2013, as an example year... Gun manufacturers built about 10.8 million guns in the U.S., and we imported another 5.5 million. Now, that number did drop slightly in 2014, and I'm going to be throwing out a lot of statistics and a lot of numbers here as we go along. This will all be in the show notes at fortheloveofdata.com. There were a lot of great resources and some interesting visualizations that I'll have up there. So when you look at that over uh, the course of time, there are about 300 million guns owned by civilians, both legally and illegally. And then the government holds approximately 2.7 million guns. Um, But what we're mainly focusing on today is the guns that individuals own. And like I said, I'll have a visualization out there broken out by year that NPR did that shows... Um, the, the total by year for pistols, revolvers, rifles, shotguns, and there's definitely been an upward, tw- upward trend since about 2004-2005. Um, 2013 was uh, a, a pretty significant jump over 2012, and uh, 2014 was pretty close to that. Uh, the stats aren't out for 2015 or 2016 yet. So before we get into um this paper-based system and all of the challenges associated with it, I'm going to give you a history of several of the firearms legislation acts uh that have come before Congress over the past um 85 years or so. Now bear with me, this is going to be a little bit of a uh, of a of a thick history lesson, but I'll try to try to keep it at a summary level and again There'll be lots of details on this uh, on the show notes and uh, links to other places where you can explore it more if you're interested. So the first act is the National Firearms Act of 1934. Now this act um, was a law that taxed the makers and distributors of firearms as a way to curtail the use of weapons commonly used in gang activity at the time. It required firearms to be registered with the Secretary of Treasury, and it compelled anyone that held an unregistered firearm to register it as well, and they would be subject to prosecution for having an unregistered firearm. Now, if that sounds like a catch-22, it absolutely was. The provision was ruled to violate the Fifth Amendment uh, against self-incrimination in 1968, and at that point, it was basically unenforceable. At the same year, uh, the Gun Control Act of 1968 passed. Now, this was one that uh, had been gaining momentum over several years, um, starting with the assassination of JFK. Um, that prompted this law because Lee Harvey Oswald's weapon was purchased from a mail-order catalog. Uh, the NRA supported the passage of this at, its, at this time, and its passage came after uh, even more recent assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. Uh, The key provisions of the bill were that it banned mail-order sales and prevented felons, drug users, and mentally ill citizens from owning guns. It also required firearm sellers to be licensed and prevented various interstate transactions unless they took place under a federally licensed dealer. So this was all about bringing more control uh, to the process, but still no tracking system for gun ownership. It established that people over 18 could purchase rifles and shotguns, and, and you had to be over 21 to get a handgun. Uh, it also set forth a form called 4473, which is still used today, the firearms transaction record, um, that required that a purchaser had to certify to a dealer that they were none of the prohibited parties that I mentioned earlier. Um, it also put forth a requirement that any guns made in the U.S. or imported to the U.S. had to have a serial number, and uh, removal of that became a felony offense. And it also closed the loophole that was in the NFA by preventing the registration of a firearm from being used as evidence in any crime occurring before the time of that registration. Now, President Johnson, who asked for uh, parts of this bill, also wanted to license individuals, and he was a, he expressed some remorse at the the way the bill passed in 1968 because it fell short of protecting Americans at a time when 160 million guns existed in the U.S., he stated that the gun lobby defeated that measure. Uh, and then, in 1993, the Brady Bill enhanced this act by requiring more stringent background checks. Now, I know I jumped from 68 to 93. That Brady Bill is a little bit inconsequential to the uh, uh, to the discussion. What we're really going to focus on most is uh, an act that passed in 1986 called the Firearm Owners Protection Act, or I'm going to call it FOPA. In 1982, a Senate subcommittee found that 75% of all Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms prosecutions regarding firearms targeted ordinary law-abiding citizens on technicalities or entrapment. Uh, The report and lobbying by the NRA prompted the passage of this act in 1986, and it loosened restrictions on interstate gun sales and mailed ammunition Um, a good thing is it banned machine guns made after that bill from being sold to the general public, and it limited ATF inspections, um, to once a year. This was, again, to try to, uh, prevent the ATF from targeting ordinary law-abiding citizens. And there's some, uh, some stories about how this was being used that, uh, that in order to, some of this is anecdotal, um, you can definitely research more into it, but, um, overzealous agents were uh, basically being highly encouraged to make a certain amount of arrests or inspections. And so they started targeting individuals that were just very casually dealing guns from their personal collections and and getting caught on technicalities. And their guns were being confiscated for years um, with very little recourse to get them back. Uh, And so it was a It was a pretty challenging time, and and so there was a lot of momentum from the lobbying group to to get this passed. Now, what we're going to focus on mostly in today's episode is a registry prohibition that was part of this act and has been in place ever since. Um, It restricted the government uh, and said that they cannot require firearms, the owners of firearms, or the transactions involving them to be reported to any government entity. Uh, and the ATF is barred from consolidating or centralizing dealer records. Uh, And the Bureau lived with this, but um, they consolidated 252 million records of active shop owners from 2000 to 2016 um, through a sort of outgrowth of another system, Uh, but they had to delete them after the Government Accountability Office found that they did not comply with the uh, restrictions of FOPA so can you imagine having two hundred fifty two million data points on sales that you had to delete and not be able to use and in the hit um, to the analytics that that would provide um, according to the pew research center most americans actually favor a federal database to track gun sales uh, about seventy percent of people overall including fifty five percent uh... who are republican so the TIDE is definitely there to have this system, and it would be much, much more efficient than, uh, than what's in place today. And I'm going to give you now a little bit of information about the traces and how the ATF does its work. So the ATF has um, 50 agents responsible for responding to trace requests. They get about 1,500 trace requests a day, About 375,000 a year in 2015. When they get these, they have to go through stacks and reams and rooms and warehouses full of paper records. These paper records are stored in 15,000 boxes, and it takes them an average of five business days for this army of analysts to go through and manually look at these. Urgent traces can be done in 24 hours if there's a critical uh, event that takes place. Um, but they are required by FOPA to take these records and they can, they can possess them, but they have to be unsearchable. They can't do any keyword searches. They can't sort by uh, dates or anything else. Uh, some records that they receive, they, they receive records in a variety of different ways. But what basically happens is, when you purchase a gun, you fill out that 4473, and it remains with the gun dealer, and it stay. They have to keep it in their possession at their business, and if they shut down, they have to send the records to uh, the ATF, and the ATF can pull those into their literal data warehouse I mean it's literally a physical warehouse of paper files organized in boxes and uh, some of the records that were sent to the uh, ATF actually came in on toilet paper or napkins as a way for shop owners who didn't like the reporting requirement um, to comply but sort of thumb their nose at the ATF despite all of this uh, the ATF has amassed 285 million records from closed-up shops in basically 25 quote-unquote data systems that all together comprise the firearms tracing system. Uh, there's more information on the show notes about this that, that goes into these, but uh, one of the places is multiple sales reports, so there's registration records um, that, that amount to about 4.2 million total records that they track. There are suspect guns. So any guns that are suspected of being used for criminal purposes but are not recoverable by law enforcement. Um, This database includes uh, individuals that have purchased large quantities of firearms, dealers with improper record keeping, um, guns observed by law enforcement in in an estate or a gun show, Basically, anything um, that kind of can go through a public record uh, is eligible to be tracked in this system. They've also got uh, traced guns. So there's about 4 million detail records for all traces that they've done um, since the inception of the system. Uh, there's the out-of-business records, which is uh, the ones that I talked about before. Uh, those include the name and address of the the purchaser, the make, the model, the serial number, and the caliber of the firearm. Uh, and as of 2010, the ATF reported that they had about several hundred million records that they had obtained since 1968. Uh, and then also theft guns, which are firearms that are reported as stolen to the ATF, um, and it only contains thefts from licensed dealers and interstate carriers. Um, it does not have a interface to the FBI theft database where the majority of stolen, lost, and, and missing firearms are, are located. So, to sum this up, several hundred million records on the almost 300 million guns that are in circulation in the U.S. Now, the way that uh, the ATF responds to these requests is they have some records that are paper, they have some that are, have been converted to microfilm, And they have, instead of making a database that's keyword searchable by serial number or owner name or anything like that, they have um, spent years perfecting uh, physical logistics uh, on how they organize their paper data and how they train analysts to do the traces. So they have focused more on how do we make this people and physical process as efficient as possible instead of using uh, you know, something that someone could probably put in one Excel workbook and get much faster performance from. We need a better system, folks. Now, I understand there are a lot of people that have some very real concerns about the government being able to track them, but the government is already able to track this stuff. It just takes them five business days to do it. Why not make a better system um, that can have some controls and can get results much faster, um, be optimized, and become a tool that can be used um, to help investigate crimes in a much more timely manner? I think there's a spectrum of solutions that could be evaluated on this. You know, on one end, um, the solution would be a basically live view of all w- weapons in the U.S. and who possesses them at that time. You know, you could basically require any exchange between parties to have to be registered, kind of like you do when you sell a car. You have to go to the, um, to the county office and register the transfer so that they can record that um, in their systems. You could go closer to what they have now and just record the initial owner, which doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a gun recovered in a crime um, is, still belongs to that owner, but it's at least a good starting point, um, and it would be a way that you could uh, you know, jumpstart the investigation and, and, and have a lead uh, to follow from the very beginning. Now, one state has actually taken some steps to do that. Hawaii, last year, uh, passed a law. They became the first state to require gun owners' uh, names to be posted to the FBI Wrap Back Database. Now, this is a database that allows them to be notified if a gun owner from their state is arrested for a crime anywhere else in the U.S., uh, it also requires that visitors to Hawaii that are packing heat uh, register their guns and be placed on the list, but they have uh, they have the ability to request to be removed from the database after departure. Now, this is a little bit too Orwellian for me, I think, uh, personally, uh, but they have uh, more liberal uh, gun tracking laws in Hawaii than they do in a lot of other states. Um, again, not going to really debate this on here, I just wanted to present this as the one state that has sort of moved toward um, tracking gun owner names. Um, And the other thing that I want to talk about a little bit, uh, which is um, kind of a tangent to uh, the paper records that the ATF has, is a system that they have called E-Trace. Now any time a gun is recovered at a crime scene, it's ran through a a firearms trace with the ATF in this system called E-Trace. E-Trace is a digital system that tracks submissions and trace results, so uh, different law enforcement agencies, even different uh, countries, can request a trace through this system and see the results from it. Um, It's pretty dynamic and usable because once a gun is in the system, it may be searched by owner name, serial number, etc. But non-crime scene guns are not in this system, so this will... Become a better and better tool uh, as more and more crimes are processed through this, but unfortunately, that's going to be a, a, an incredibly small percentage compared to the 300 million guns um, that exist out there overall. Um, and I have a, a list that's, uh, that shows since 1988 how many requests, uh, total requests that they've uh, that they've done. It's up to about 373,000 uh, for this year. Uh, the top 10 states with the most recoveries and traces, uh, I've also got that. California, Florida, and Texas are the top three. New York is number 10. Uh, and the number of firearms that have been recovered and traced is only 246,000. So like I said, 246,000 out of, uh, 300 million. Um, so pretty small amount there. So I'm going to wrap up this survey, uh, that I've done on probably the worst, uh, database tracking mechanism that I could imagine uh, and leave you with a few final thoughts Uh, one thing that I do want to mention specifically is in the show notes there's going to be a link to an article uh, from GQ uh, that was the first article that I came across when I started uh, researching this, it's what gave me the idea idea to do this and um, the author of that article uh, goes through uh, a lot of the human elements and, and some of the thoughts there and so it's a really great read uh, but I would suggest that you think about this and think about how inefficient this is and how challenging it is. Uh, the fact that the majority of Americans are actually in favor of a system to track this. Uh, and I think everyone would, uh, I think most people would argue that the system needs to be better than uh, what's in place right now. So go out there and check on some resources where you could get involved. Um, write your congressman or congresswoman and let them know your opinion on this and suggest that they bring it up uh, for discussion Uh, because I think it would be a valuable tool uh, to be able to respond to crimes in a much more efficient way and it could even serve as a deterrent to someone um, to show them that, you know, if you are going to commit a crime there is a very high likelihood uh, that you... uh, that your name is going to be found in the system, or that the weapon that you use will be found quickly and and start being traced to you um, even if it was even if it had to go through um, some sales records or uh, some investigation to see that it actually exchanged hands a few times uh, I think I don't know if I said the stat earlier, but in 2013 uh, the ATF said that seventy percent of their trace requests Uh, actually uh, end in them identifying the original owner of the gun, which is a pretty good uh, percentage, but with a system like this that would definitely be much higher and it would happen much quicker. So I think I've hit those points enough. Uh, I'm going to start wrapping things up. First off, thank you uh, for listening to this episode uh, and all of the facts and figures that I I laid out. Uh, Like I said at the beginning, uh, show notes on fortheloveofdata.com. Uh, if you have questions or comments, you can tweet uh, me at, at loveofdata or at Robert Fur. Uh, you can always send me an email or leave a comment on the website. I would love to hear uh, what you guys think of the episode. Um, and if you have any questions or things that you would like to hear in future episodes, please let me know. So until next time, this is Robert Fur with For the Love Data well, can't signing off. On with his gun on his hips. a bite Batman, city City park Emma Rich, try they might be